0: Hello, and welcome to my summer in Alaska. My name's Emily Cherish, and on this episode, you're going to shadow me throughout my archaeology course. This class... (laughs) was amazing and crazy and the most different thing I've ever done probably in my life. Class met Monday through Friday, 9 to 4, so definitely became close with the people in my class. There's like an art form to archaeology. It's not just digging holes and finding whatever. There's this historical element and there's a nature element and there's a discovery element to it, right? Like we're looking to find things that can tell us more about the past. My class definitely a passionate and interested group of people, right? Everyone loves archaeology. Everyone is there to do archaeology. As someone that is not an archaeologist and more of an observer, it was pretty awesome seeing people interact with what they love for the first time on a professional level. So this is a lot of people's first field school, and field school is like precursor to being a professional in the field. Let's get some background from the professor on this course.
1: My name is Dr. Justin Cram. I'm an archeologist with a specialty in zooarchaeology. I particularly work in sites in East Polynesia and on historic research here in Alaska. Uh, You are enrolled in my Anthropology 490 course, which is the Archaeological Field School. So the field school has a combination of in-class lecture and lab work as well as uh, actual field work out at the Chinatown site Archaeological Site, which is just outside of Fairbanks. So we spend a lot of our time excavating um, a real archaeological site, uh, looking for evidence of past human activity. Um, in particular, uh, Gold Rush era activity uh, here in the Fairbanks area.
0: Can you give a breakdown of like exactly what archaeology is and why people do it?
1: Yeah, so archaeology is the study of the human past through material culture. All of the things that are left behind uh, by people. That can be artifacts like... Uh, stone projectile points or arrowheads. It can also be things like people's former fire pits or their house foundations or anything, any traces that we leave behind on the environment being directly or indirectly. What we're trying to do as archaeologists kind of across the board is understand different patterns of human behavior, Uh, what people did in different places at different times and kind of what that can teach us about Um, our history as well as, uh, you know, the way we go about our lives today.
0: Why did you become interested in this? Like, what was the draw factor for you?
1: Um, So I had, uh, I kind of came to archaeology a bit late in life. I came to college a bit late in life, honestly. Um, Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Didn't really know what career paths were viable. Um, And then uh, one day after working for Quite a long time doing manual labor and things of that nature. I just decided, you know, I'm going to do what interests me, and uh, and we'll see where that takes me. So I enrolled at uh, Central Michigan University as an undergraduate in their uh, in their anthropology program, and um, within my first year was wrapped up in archaeological research and um, kind of trying to identify the specific points of interest that I had in the human past and, um, and wound up traveling around the world, doing different archeological projects. And um, I think very quickly knew that it was gonna be my career.
0: Do you have any like memories of either past excavations or things that you have worked on where you're like, oh, this is a really cool result that I found and I'm gonna like, hold on to this
1: yeah so i i think there are a lot of things that uh that kind of impact you as an archaeologist and as an archaeology student Uh, you know you're working on diverse sites around around the world really and everyone's going to have its own um, its own kind of influence on you and you're going to make connections to that site so you know, I've worked on um, historic sites in Michigan where you are really closely connected to the community and you can see how just the simplest thing that you pull out of the ground, a, a child's marble or a toothbrush or something like that can evoke this this unbelievable emotion in people who are connected to this. You know, this might be something that was their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers or, you know, however far down the line. So... You know, those emotional connections with descendant populations uh, really stand out for me. It's taking those small finds, like you were mentioning, um, you know, those individual artifacts or or whatnot, and tying them all together into something bigger that's really, I think, the the thing that keeps archaeologists coming back to, you know, keep... uh, putting more pieces together to try to understand the greater whole.
0: Can you describe a little bit about the Alaskan archeological community? What's going on, what's the scene like here?
1: Yeah, so we have a lot of different researchers doing a lot of different work here in Alaska. We, you know, Alaska is absolutely huge. Um, We're here in the interior, uh, but there are other regions where there are other uh, archeological specialists working. Um, and so for the academic scene, we all, we all work very closely together, uh, be it, you know, University of Alaska Fairbanks um, or the other uh, University of Alaska locations, as well as the uh, UA Museum of the North. Uh, so we have a lot of collaboration that goes on within the archaeological community here. And a lot of people that are working on very different things, but we still you know, communicate with each other about what we're doing. Um, so we have people working on some of the oldest sites in the Americas. Um, we also have people working on recent sites like um, like the Chinatown site that we're working on. Uh, in the case of the Chinatown site, we regularly have archaeologists from University of Alaska Fairbanks, from the Museum of the North, from the Bureau of Land Management, um, and we consult with others as well. Uh, so we have kind of all of these people interacting together to to make sure we're all doing good work and able to get insights from each other on, on what we're finding. In the case of historic sites like this, if we have glass bottle, we can look at the manufacturer's marks on the bottom of the bottle. We can look at the way the bottle was constructed. You know, was it hand blown? Was it done on a machine? Was it done on a machine that was assisted by people? Um, and by getting all of that information by looking at that artifact we can um, we can identify where it was manufactured often We can identify when it was manufactured often down to a uh, to a tight range of years And then we can kind of understand uh, where the materials that were winding up at China came from and we have things from all over the lower 48 that have That have found their way here we can also look at things like how people may have reused items over time if you're out on the alaskan frontier during the gold rush era which is when the chinatown site was in use you're not going to be you know just throwing things away the way we do today you don't have a big pile of recycling to take down or anything like that you're going to reuse those objects because they're going to be Um, somewhat more scarce than they are here today. We can try to understand the use life of these objects and how they fit into people's lives as we attempt to understand the community that lived out here.
0: What are some of the things that you think were going on there based on the things that we found so far?
1: So China's a really interesting location. Um, I've mentioned it's a gold rush era site, so um, it's mostly European population as far as we can tell so far. Um that have come in to the Americas and then made their way up to Alaska in search of gold. What's interesting about China is it's kind of a central distribution point. So we're not mining right on site per se. The people are getting their supplies and then going out to mine um, kind of further uh, inland and to prospect on the rivers and mm. um, to look for gold in these locations. And then they would come back to an area like China to sell their gold, to stake their claims, to do uh, all of that. So China is acting as kind of this central point. And as such, it has things that you're not going to get out in the the wilderness here. Um, So we have blacksmith shops, we have butchers, we have lodging for people who are traveling through. We have places to overwinter animals in the harsh Alaskan winters. All of these things that are kind of needed to support this mining community. So when we're looking at these building foundations, uh, yes, we're looking at mining, but we're also looking at kind of the domestic structure that follows mm. mining. The support crew that has come up here also to make money in their own ways, right? But not necessarily those who are you know out there actually doing the extraction of minerals, but the people who are living in town, supporting those practices, um, and doing all the things that are necessary for that kind of expansion to occur. So China's a very short-lived community. Chino was founded in, uh, in 1902, just before or around the same time as Fairbanks. Chino was the first kind of town, like proper town to support uh, gold mining in the interior here, or this far into the interior. Um, Chino is right on the river, so it was a place that large boats could come and bring supplies. Um, Fairbanks, on the other hand, its location was chosen kind of by accident, and the founder of Fairbanks, E.T. Barnett, was kind of pushed off of the boat he was on when it had hit ground, and he unloaded his supplies here, and this became Fairbanks. What we understand of the two, uh, they were both attempting to serve similar functions uh, as kind of a, a base or a central point for the miners to come to Fairbanks was more successful in the long run so if they had this rivalry um, Fairbanks was the town that won out whereas China did not and so um, by the 1920s we don't have much left of China. and they're starting to tear down the buildings um, and relocate them either up here to Fairbanks or to put them on the river where they could easily be transported down to Nenana 1902 to 1920s um, is our kind of time frame.
0: What are some of the emotional aspects behind the excitement of being in this type of hands-on environment and discovering things for the first time for some of the students?
1: Sometimes uh, a student will uncover an artifact and then they want to essentially be with that artifact (laughs) through its entire journey to see what (laughs) happens to it so they'll be they'll want to be the one to wash it they'll be the one to catalog it. Um, So you get this kind of sense of attachment you know it's a I think it's a real sense of accomplishment um, that uh, that students often feel like all right we've done something real here and we can we can follow that and learn how these individual finds tie into something bigger you'll get real high levels of excitement you'll hear a a yell from across the site as someone has you know pulled um, some sort of uh, artifact out of a screen when they're they're shaking sediment through to look for those small things, and then you get other students that become very interested in in things that you know aren't so uh, romanticized. So you'll know, you'll get students that are uh, very excited about the uh, the layering of sediments and. Uh, the transition zones that you find, and you'll have students that are very excited about things like, um, you know, animal bones that are found in the excavations and things of that nature. So there's often, you know, high levels of excitement on a site as we kind of explore what what the site has to offer and, and excavate into uh, layers representing uh, different eras in the past.
0: So as Dr. Cram mentioned, our class takes place on an abandoned town site called China. To give more context on China and what it was in the past, here is the surveyor who basically ignited the modern interest in China.
2: Yes, I'm Martin Gutowski. I'm a professional land surveyor and also a member of the fairbanks North Star Borough Historic Preservation Commission and the Tanana Yukon Historic Society. Being a surveyor, I would process subdivision applications. There was a subdivision called China Marina, which showed a couple survey corners that said US Survey 436 China Townsite. And so I looked at the map, and there's this huge 400 acre uh, parallelogram that comes out of the borough base maps, and that was the old China Townsite. And so basically, the town of China was founded in 1902. And there was a trade store across from where China is now that was called Hendricks and Belt's Store. And those folks moved across the river. It's a big island across from China. And then they founded China itself because when you're on an island, if it's the erosion side, that's okay, but if it's on the deposition side, then the bank keeps getting further away and you can't you can't berth large vessels there. So they saw that the Tana was eating into where China was and it was a good harbor for steamships coming up from the States, going all the way up the Yukon and the Tanana to unload their cargo. So, China was the big place to unload all the freight. And then the Tanano Valley Railroad would take the freight to the gold fields or it would take it into Fairbanks because then they could unload it. So, it, it was uh, 1904, it was really starting to boom. And 1905, the steam train came in, the little little engine that's at Pioneer Park. And then they laid track to Fairbanks and they laid track to uh, Gilmore. Things were really booming up until about 1910 and then the gold ran out that was available with gold pans and drift mines and so the gold was pretty well easy to get at for the first five, six years but then you needed heavier equipment to really get the gold and because of that it was more and more expensive and these little mining operations just couldn't afford the equipment. So as a result, by 1910, things started going on the downturn and then World War One came around and you lost a lot of manpower and it just wasn't economical with a big corporation to do the mining. Chino had more people than Fairbanks at one time. Yeah,
0: so what was life like in Chino?
2: Well, if you look at some of the pictures, there were a lot of big commercial buildings on the waterfront and then all the other ancillary buildings like the saloons and the warehouses came from that and then of course people settled there to try to take advantage of the boom or be employed
0: what was the relationship between china and fairbanks at the time
2: very hostile Um, they had three newspapers that were at one time in china at various times and of course you had about two newspapers in fairbanks and if you read some of the microfilm that's down in archives they're always bashing each other because Mm -hmm. it was a rival town. I mean, China was trying to survive during the gold rush and Fairbanks was trying to survive in the gold rush and so they were competing interests and of course, when you got a town that's rivaling another town, it's sort of like Anchorage and Fairbanks, only further apart. Um, And so they were not friendly to each other and as a result, when Fairbanks survived because it was the judicial capital, China started failing and that's what killed it. Well, typical ghost towns uh, that result from a boom, they're gone, they fade away. I mean, there were a lot of ghost towns that were railroad stops in the gold fields, but when I discovered that there was a town of China, I investigated more and realized that it was rivaling Fairbanks. It had a population of over 1,500 people, and Fairbanks had about that same population, but they're gone. They're just a footnote in history. And so you understand the basis for these booms that they seem like they're gonna go on forever, but they fade. If, if the economic impetus is not there, they're gonna be gone, and Fairbanks is a sister city, but it survived when China didn't, and you just have to understand the history of development, and it's sometimes tragic. There are ghost towns, and <laughs> you know, I didn't even know there was a town there until my father was a highway engineer for DOT, and they were realigning Ludecker Road because that used to be the railroad grade. And he said, well, when he went out there, you could see railroad ties sticking out of the bank of the Tanana. And, of course, that's all gone now. So it's just such a brief period of time that it just didn't stick in people's mind. It's, it's a gone town.
0: Now I'm going to take you to class with me. So to give you a rundown of how my days go, wake up at like 8 30 head to class at 9 so when I say head to class I mean I'm driving 15 minutes from campus to the town site where Chino once was 100 years ago we get up we park our cars get out and then walk like half a mile from this parking lot into the woods and that's where Chino was it's on the water we kind of have a view while we're digging and then we set up for the day and start digging. So we're on site now. We're in the woods. We're at the former Chena town site. And I'm going to introduce you to some of my classmates. Here's Lee. Uh,
1: I'm Lee Cabinus. Uh I'm originally from Bozeman, Montana, but now I live in Alexandria, Virginia. I always remember being on my, my property in Montana and digging up things and sort of wondering when they when they came from and, you know, anything you can find out about it. I just find it fascinating. I chose to come to Alaska in particular because uh, my archaeology professor actually recommended this this field school. I've always just found it fascinating. Uh, I always think studying the past is some of the most interesting things you can do. Uh, there's so much we, we don't know, which is surprising, and it's always interesting to learn more.
0: Here's Sam. My name's Samuel Steele, and I'm originally uh, from Austin, Texas. I've always thought it would be interesting to
1: be in Alaska or do something in Alaska, so uh, I chose this one.
0: It's very, like, outdoorsy. I like places like that. I um, thought that uh, it would be uh, cool to be in the woods or in the mountains doing something, been, it's been interesting being in the woods every day, and uh, it's nice to just work outside. As I mentioned before, one of my favorite things about this class was seeing how passionate my classmates were about this area of study. Here's our first time digging on the site. Me and my friend Julia were assigned to dig in a certain area. What we're looking for is anything at all that could have been used by a person is of interest and could provide us with information about exactly what was happening in the spot over a hundred years ago. This is the moment she had discovered something for the first time in class.
1: Oh my gosh, I found something. That's so exciting.
0: It's nails. Oh but that's my gosh. really cool. I love the sound of it. Yeah, how do you determine whether it's a nail or wood?
1: You can just feel it. Oh my gosh, that's so cool.
0: That's sick. That is
1: really fun. Oh my gosh, I've never found something before. Yeah, how do you That was feel? my first
0: archaeological like, That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. If you're thinking about taking this class, please do. Something UAF does really well is give a full-on immersive experience into the field in which you want to be working in. We did everything in this class from digging to cataloging in the museum to hearing legit experts in the field speak about how they do this every day. Most days on site, people from the Bureau of Land Management, people working at the museum, they would just show up and see what we were up to. This was usually intertwined with them sharing interesting stories from their own work and how we can best navigate the field of archaeology in Alaska. In this class, you can expect to meet people that make up the field of archaeology. Also, we went on like five field trips, and you know I love a good field trip. But I definitely recommend this course for people interested in specifically the archaeology field, or if you're interested in history and working outdoors, this could be the field for you. Definitely take a jump, come to Alaska, and see for yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode of My Summer in Alaska. This podcast is presented by the University of Alaska, Fairbanks. A special thanks to producer Marmion Grimes and Samara Tabor. Thank you to everyone at UAF. For more information on the classes that I took, you can check out uaf.edu.